Hello, John from the Lib Dem podcast here. We are delighted to say that this episode is sponsored by Prater Reigns. Now more than ever, you need a professional-looking online presence and website. Prater Reigns have been helping Liberal Democrat campaigns succeed for 18 years. Their Lib Dem foci package combines a website, social media and email system to help Lib Dems win. You'll receive great support from real people, fair pricing and a huge range of features to choose from. Prater Reigns are already the bespoke developers for Lighthouse, Lib Dem Draw Online and the LD Directory. They combine a talented system design with an unrivaled understanding of our party, our data and our systems. To find out more, check out the Prater Reigns website at praterreigns.co.uk slash liberal-democrats. Hello and welcome to the Lib Dem podcast. Now we have a very, very special guest with us today. Now we've said in the past about some people having lots of jobs within the Lib Dems over their careers. Now this gentleman has had a lot of jobs from staff, being a staff member, a campaign coordinator. He's been an MP, an MSP, a leader. Um, we're not talking about David, who's also with us today. We are, talk, of course, talking about the wonderful Willie Rennie. Welcome to the podcast, Willie. Thank you very much, John. I'm looking forward to being grilled by David and yourself. Yes, oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll go easy. I mean, David, have we decided how easy we're going to go on Willie in this interview? You know, there's there's a lot to cover. Uh, I, I, hopefully after this, I get some kind of job with GB News grilling people, you know. <laughs> now, our production quality is far better than GB News, so, you know, they, they won't take on a rival. But, no, but I mean, Willie, we'll start off, um, if you don't mind, just talking a little bit about your views about Afghanistan, because for those that don't know, you were on the Commons Defence uh, Select Committee as well as uh, a spokesman for the Lib Dems when you were in Parliament. So could you give us your thoughts a little bit on the situation? Uh, I actually visited Afghanistan in 2007. We did Pakistan first and then went over into Afghanistan. And the one thing that struck everybody, as I'm sure anybody who's got any experience of Afghanistan, is that it's not very easy. It's a very complex part of the world with, you know, with ingrained prejudices. um, And, you know, anybody who thinks that the problem has just really started in the last few weeks, I think has not been uh, paying attention. I, when we went to Afghanistan at the time, it was John Reid was the defence secretary. And he said, we're going to go into Helmand without a shot being fired. And then hundreds of people died, hundreds of soldiers. I mean, I, it, was a, it was a feature at the time that Gordon Brown would start Prime Minister's questions by reading out a list of the dead from that week. It was a really sombre period. So this is a very difficult country to manage. Um, and I think the, the root of the, the current problem was with Donald Trump, who astonishingly just gave the Taliban authority above the democratically elected government of the country. And whenever you elevate a, a force like that to that status, then it is no surprise that the provincial leaders, the tribal leaders, across Afghanistan, see where the power has shifted. So it was no surprise all those deals were done. And it was no surprise that the Taliban took over just like that as soon as the Americans went. So um, all of this, you know, was laid at the door of, uh, of Biden, who have a bit more sympathy for than probably most people do, because I understand the difficult position he was put in. Um, but he should have changed that at the time and started to reverse the damage that had been done by Trump. Um, so I, I think it's it's a horrendously complex situation. What we need to do now is, you know, we can look back and see where the mistakes were made, but we also need to look forward to see what do we do now. An awful lot of that is based around diplomacy, but also about the regional players, because Pakistan, India, China, Iran, They've all got significant influences alongside Russia within the country. And we need to make sure that we can make the best of a really difficult situation and make sure that first and foremost, no foreign players like Al-Qaeda start getting into Afghanistan again and that they are able to um, try and stabilise the country in whatever way we possibly can, because we cannot go back to the way that we were before. Um, But it's horrendously complex and difficult and... Um, I think the the diplomats have got a, 
an enormous job to try and recover the damage that's been done first by Trump, but also by years and years and years of battles in the country. Thank you, Willie. Thank you. It's, it's, it's an important topic, and for anybody who's listening, obviously we did a we did a, a, a podcast episode on the situation in Afghanistan, and it's just it's just tragic to see what's unfolding and and how we've kind of let a lot of people down, not only in Afghanistan but globally as well for the you know diaspora community as well that are worried about families etc. back there. So no, it's it's interesting. But well, obviously for this episode we wanted to focus on you. Uh, and obviously your time as, as leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats. And it would be remiss of me not to start off by saying a big thank you to you for taking on such a job for 10 years or just over 10 years, I think. Uh, and what was probably a very difficult period as well for the Scottish Liberal Democrats. And you took that burden on, you you know, you did a, a valiant job. And But first of all, you know, obviously you've just recently stepped down. Are you enjoying having some time back? Are you rested and relaxing? Yeah, I am. And it's... I have to say the biggest change is not having to think about what I'm supposed to think about. Um, it's just, you know, you, you can watch the news now without thinking, how do I react to this, that and the other? Now, of course, I'm going to do a bit of that and I'm going to try and advise Alex and support Alex and generate the lines and the opportunities. Um, but I always felt that I couldn't watch the news without having to think where the chances were uh, and where the responsibilities were. So that's a, that's a big change. Um, but... Anybody who's following Facebook will see that I've been, I've not stopped campaigning over the summer. I've been going around various council wards trying to make sure we're ready as much as possible for next year. So um, if you speak to my wife, you'll find that I don't relax very much and I'll, I'll keep on going. But no, it's, it's, it's just that it's a change. And I think it was time for a change in my mind. Um, and Alex is ready and, you know, he he can take it on and I'll support him in whatever way I can. Absolutely. And I think it did, you know, it, it did come slightly as a shock to a lot of Scottish members. Um, you know, you talked there about your energy. You're obviously a very keen runner and you, you know, you obviously do your uh, your, your daily update when you're out of run, et cetera, which we all, all watched, especially during the election campaign. Um, but when you announced, obviously, you were going to be stepping down as leader, I think a lot of people were shocked. And was it something that, you hadn't initially thought, and or was it something that was in the back of your mind that you thought, as you said, it is time for a change, and you decided maybe now is the time to do it? it, it I mean, I, to be honest, I, I've I constantly thought about it. Um, not constantly thought about it. I have periodically thought about it for years. Because when you're in this job, a lot, some people tell you what you want to think. Uh, you know, put, put, so some people tell you, even if you don't want to hear it. <laughs> and they'll be very brutal. Um, other people are afraid to tell you the truth about things because they don't want to upset you. you. Think you've got enough on your plate as it is. Um, so actually, getting a proper, independent assessment about what's the right thing for the party is quite difficult to do. Um, and so I would constantly just watch, and that's why I took a wee bit of time after the election, just to see how things settled. And just observed people's reactions to what I was doing um, and how I felt about facing certain situations, because sometimes it's just the gut that tells you whether you carry on. Um, and it just felt that, you know, going in, when you lose a seat, because we went back, even though we had massive majorities in our own seats, it doesn't matter, we went back. Um, so everybody who's got a particular grievance about the way the party's been managed over the last, the last 10 years now feels fully justified in what they've been saying, even though they all contradict each other. So you're having to push it past those people before you can get to what you really want to do is to move the party forward. And I've, I've set out a number of things that I think the party should be doing um, over the last few weeks. You know, so it was just thought, can I go through that again? Or would it just be easier actually and best for the party to say, right, well, now is the refreshing point and you hand over the leadership to somebody else. Because ultimately, I mean, I've got to do what's right for myself, but but actually, you know, this party means a lot to me. Um, I want it to succeed. Um, and if I think somebody else can do it better than me, I'll pass it on. And I think Alex can do it better than me. Um, yeah. So that's why I decided to, to move on. Yeah. 
But you obviously, you had a long career in the party before you became the leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats. Um, and as John rightly touched on at the start, you know, everything through to being a campaigner um, towards working for the party to then being an MP and an MSP. But really what I wanted to understand was what made you decide you wanted to, first of all, get involved in politics and also be a Liberal Democrat? Yeah, it just felt that natural thing. You know, there was no, I didn't sit down and read the stuff. I mean, I like manifestos, but not that much. Um, <laughs> but it was just one of these things that you felt. I mean, I was brought up in North East Fife, so I had Ming Campbell and the Liberal Democrats around me, so they weren't alien to me. Nationalism at that point was never really a thing that we contemplated. Um, you know, the, the SNP were a, the, the SNP students at, at college were a bit of an oddity. Mm. Um, My dad know, always says uh, when he was younger, people used to think you were a bit weird if you voted nationalist. <laughs> yeah, it was. They were strange, um, and then you know. At, at um, you know, student politics was really a divide between the left, the left, and the left, um, and there wasn't very much, very much else. And then occasionally you would get the Tories uh, popping up, um, but you know, and I never felt, I never had the kind of grievance agenda that was in Labour politics. You know, I actually felt more about uniting the country than I did about them and us. That was never me. You know, there was, I grew up in the the 1970s and 80s when there was a lot of industrial strife and it just wasn't me um and um so that felt alien uh, to me uh, and i was never a tory um you know for the for probably exactly the same reasons because of the grievance agenda um you know i actually viewed enabling people to do what they want to do was my big thing i always remember seeing people who i thought they're left out why are they left out you know, people who had mental health problems or, you know, even back then you would spot it. You know, people who had physical disabilities that weren't getting a chance. You know, kids that were my friends at school whose families weren't able to support them properly. And they didn't get a chance to go to university or that. And I always felt, you know, somebody needs to speak for those people, not this kind of class warfare thing, but actually giving people chances. And it was chances. How do you give people an opportunity to do things? And I still meet those people now. And I wish I could have done something for them back then um, to give them that chance in life. So um, that's why I always felt that I should be there for the underdog. Uh, you know, if somebody was getting bullied at school, I was the one that stepped in and got beat up myself. Um, you know? <laughs> so it was that kind of thing. I always felt a responsibility, um, which is why I focus on things like mental health and you know, special needs, um, daycare services and stuff like that. That's what really makes me tick. Um, so that's why I got involved. Liberal Democrats seemed a natural place. Um, at the time, it was, you know, Shirley Williams, Roy Jenkins, all those people who were coming up who inspired me. And Mine Campbell, obviously, but Charles Kennedy a little bit later, David Steele. I always attracted to David Steele. I thought very sensible, reasonable man who proposed quite radical things. I loved his book, what was it, The Militant for the Reasonable Man. I thought that summed me up. Uh, quite well, being be able to do quite radical things, but to reassure people that it was safe. Um, and I, David Steele was brilliant at that. Um, so that's why I got involved. Mm. And then obviously, we're, we're probably skipping quite over a lot here in terms of what you did within the party. But obviously, I think sometimes it gets a little bit lost that you were an MP before you were an MSP. Uh, a lot of people maybe don't pick up on that fact because you did have 10 years as the leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats in, in the Scottish Parliament. But obviously you came in in the by-election victory in 2006 and in Fermlin. Uh, uh, really, what made you decide, first of all, to stand? And did you realise at the time when you stood that there was a real chance that you could potentially pip that election and take the seat? I always felt Dunfermline was possible. Um just because I had done a little bit of work with the councillors down there and there was a massive big housing estate that had been built on the edge of it, which is basically a suburb of Edinburgh. And I spotted that this was possible. And the party was doing reasonably well. Charles was still kind of leader at that point, although he had just given up before the by-election started. And um, But it felt right. We'd, we'd just got second place the time before and getting second place is crucial with these by-elections. And then we had the brilliant Paul Ranger. Um, and if, for those who don't know Paul Ranger, he just 
a master at by-elections. He made me human to the voters of Dunfermline. Um, he used to do get little cartoons of me as Ur Willy made up and stick them in the leaflets. He was just, he broke through. And we talked about the bridge, the hospital, the high street. And that's what mattered to people, was the tolls in the bridge, the, high, the hospital potentially getting downgraded, the high street being terrible. And we campaigned on issues that people really, really cared about. So I kind of knew that we had the potential to get it. Um, and Labour were in a bit of a state um, at the time. But Paul Ranger was just a genius. But it was Nicol Stephen that asked me um, to stand. Um, and I hadn't really thought about that much before then. So Nicol, um, you know, was the one that spotted. And then he came about seven times, I think, to help. Um, but it was a brilliant by-election. And there's kind of running joke amongst my friends in the party who, who every opportunity I get a chance to talk about Dunfermline. Because <laughs> it it's such a brilliant, such a brilliant campaign. Um, nobody saw us coming and we just knocked them out of the park. And remember, we had numerous scandals at the time. I love winning from really dodgy odds. Um, but we had numerous scandals. You know, Charles had gone in really difficult circumstances. But then there was a leadership race which fell apart because we had problems with various candidates getting involved in various scandals. And then there was a, a minute of the Scottish MPs meeting that was left on a photocopier somewhere. Um, and, it, and it declared that Willie was going to struggle to hold on to second place. Right? So all these things were like weighed against us. But what we did, and this is a, this is a salutary lesson for people, when they think everything is against them, just go knock on some doors. Because it, it, is, it just sobers you up. It makes you realise that people are not really bothered about all that puff. Um, so we knocked on some doors in Inverkeever, and there was two people mentioned it. One laughed at One I discovered later on was always rude to everybody who came to the door. Um, but the other one just laughed with us. And, and the vote in the rest of the estate, which is just an ordinary estate, was, was big. So it's a lesson for people. Just keep pursuing it and knock on the doors to find out what people are really thinking. Because that's the way to find out if you've got a chance or not. And, yeah, and, sorry, I'm, I'm talking too much. No, no, no. I was, we've made this point a lot, you know, about when you're inside the political bubble, you don't realise that 99% of the population isn't. And you might think it's an absolute scandal or a huge story. How can anyone vote for me? And most people haven't even heard of it, let alone made a judgment on it. We were on the front page of the Sunday newspapers that day, every single front page. And I knocked in the afternoon of that day in the doors and two people mentioned it and one was already with us. So, I mean, yeah. So yeah. you're absolutely right, but it's overstated mm -hmm. in the yeah. bubble. And it's the, the best thing to do is get out and tell people that you've gone out and tell people what happened when you were out. And that gets them out as well. And then you're rolling again. And I think there was, uh, you know, people tend to forget as well at the time, you know, Labour put out a big gun in Catherine Stiller, who was the incumbent MEP for Scotland. Uh, and there was a lot of, you know, I don't want to say arrogance of saving the seat, but there was definitely a view of like, this is a safe seat and we don't really need to worry about it. And then, you know, as you've rightly said, Willie, just get out and continually knock doors and you never know how these things can turn. And we've seen that recently as well with by-elections down south, where we've had fantastic victories and, you know, the incumbent party might have been a bit uh, naive in thinking that there was no problems. But it also tells you, I think it told you a little bit about what was to come for the Labour Party. I mean, we discovered during the independence referendum campaign in 2014 just how poor a state the organisation Labour Party was. There was hardly any canvassability across the country, very few canvassers. Uh, and I think, uh, I mean, because we used to see the spreadsheets during the independence campaign about who was doing what where, they were doing nothing. And that was a sign there of what was to come. The, the SNP managed to exploit that opportunity later. People were fed, we forget in Scotland, people were really fed up with the dominance of Labour for decades. They said they take us for granted. They assume they're going to win and therefore they don't have to do anything. And when you don't have to do anything, you don't bother knocking on doors. Um, and that's, that. I think it was a kind of a warning for the Labour Party of what was about to come with the SNP rise. We mm. we got in there first. Um, but you know, it's um I think it could, you know, it could easily we could easily have exploited it elsewhere, but you know, the SNP managed to get there first. 
Yeah, and I think you're right, though, because, you know, I, I found this for, for a long time being a Labour Party organiser that trying to get activists out to campaign was the hardest part of my job because I think people just assumed we don't need to. You know, it's, it's in the bag here. It's safe, blah, blah, blah. And these things, it's like a dripping tap. You know, it does a lot of damage over a period of time. And if you don't stem it, then it's uh, then it becomes a problem. And and there was I remember speaking to, because I used to talk to the Labour MPs when I was in Westminster, and I say, so what are you up to this weekend, Ian? And he said, he, he, I said, I'm going canvassing. And he looked at me as if I was alien. <laughs> he said, I said, what would I do that for? <laughs> he said. And this was typical of a lot of them, particularly the West of Scotland ones. They were just so arrogant. They had assumed they'd got it in the bag and they didn't bother doing anything. And the SNP just, first puff of wind, it fell over. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm... I'm uh, I think so. That was a warning of what was to come. But Dunfermline was great. I loved the place. In fact, I probably got a bit too attached to the place. And when I lost in 2010, it was tough. Really mm. tough. And that um, must have been especially tough in the fact that, you know, in 2010, and I know we might touch on the coalition because you obviously went into the Scottish Parliament. It must have been tough in the aspect of you lose your seat and the party's just got in a position where it can enter government. Was that a personal disappointment? Did you think there was a chance you could have held it? Um, I thought I had held it about three weeks beforehand. I thought I was going to coast it three weeks. And I'll, I'll tell you about my theory. It's probably not based on any fact, really. Um, I managed to get a coalition of voters in Dunfermline that didn't really care what was happening in national politics. They just wanted to back me to do a good job locally. They were fed up with Labour for years. They backed me locally. But they were all way from the left to the right. You know, it was like a huge spectrum of people who would vote. And if they all met each other in a room, they'd be horrified. But um, they, so I got them. But as soon as Nick Clegg became a big thing in the campaign and potentially directing the future of the national government, then that coalition fell apart. Mm. And, you know, there would be some people who they didn't like him and therefore that became a bigger thing than my reputation in Dunfermline. I mean, I had ratings in Dunfermline that were as good as Gordon Brown's and considering he was the next door MP. I think that was astonishing that we managed to achieve that, but it didn't matter a jot when it came to that pressure. The Labour Party just exploited the fact that we potentially could do a deal with the Tories. And the fact that it potentially could happen, no matter what I said, was enough for those people who were soft labour, who came to me to say, nah, we're off. And it just collapsed. You could feel it. I did one street, Headwell Road in Dunfermline. And I did it three weeks out and then the last weekend. And this, I mean, the vote must have dropped by about two thirds in the space of two weeks. Just astonishing. And it was all because the national campaign became much more relevant and therefore their views about that mattered and therefore they weren't going to back me if they didn't agree. So um, you could feel it just melting away. So, yeah, it was a I was actually more disappointed about not being able to hold the seat than I was about the opportunity of me being at Westminster at the time. Um, that, that mattered less, to be honest. I, uh, it was about I wanted to be the MP for Dunfermline, um, and I was disappointed I didn't hold on. Yeah, yeah. And then, obviously, you know, unfortunately, you didn't hold the seat, but then the opportunity comes around a year later to run for the Scottish Parliament, and obviously you were elected and this is kind of a two-part question because first of all I wanted to understand what your thoughts were on Holyrood versus Westminster and sort of the change that was going from being an MP to an MSP and I won't name names but I've heard people that have done both jobs that have said that uh, Westminster's a lot more full-on than, than maybe Holyrood might be uh, and the other part was really obviously you, you come into the Scottish Parliament and then you become leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats was, was that really ever on the radar or did was it something you felt that okay I, I'm here and I have to put my name forward for this? There, there was no there was um, well for, first of all let me deal with Westminster Holyrood. They're they're different beasts. Uh, Westminster does the big thing better, the big occasion, the big event, you know, and it, it's a much more you know people put their political badges aside at Westminster when the chips are down. Um, the whole Afghanistan thing is an example of that, where, you know, the kind of party divide is broken down and people just actually speak from the heart because it really matters. And um, and the committees are better. 
and the committee reports are much more authoritative for that. Um, I was on the defence committee for a bit and I thought they produced some excellent reports, which weren't, even they were dominated by Labour MPs, they weren't, you know, pro-government. They were, they were actually looking at the issue and making a judgment on the issue very effectively. Um, I think Holyrood, is a little, there's a little bit less stuffiness, but it's just as abusive. You know, I don't think there's, it's just as noisy. Um, you know, being surrounded by nationalist MSPs on all sides and trying to ask Nicola a question that they don't like is, is not the easiest thing in the world. Um, so I think, um, and, and obviously Holyrood is much more relevant to the things that I really care about, you know, health and social care and uh, education and so on. Um, so it was odd being at Westminster where quite a lot of the agenda wasn't relevant to constituents. So there's bits of Holyrood I like and bits of Westminster I liked. I think there's this idea that the Scottish Parliament's got it all right is just not the case. Um, the committees could be so much better. Um, and I think that kind of conceit probably needs to be pricked a little bit because uh, I don't think they're as good as they think they are. Mm. Um, so yeah, but... Um, yeah, so did I think I was going to be a leader? I kind of felt it, that it was probably going to happen, because um, I knew that Tavish would probably stand down, because we knew the election was going to be a bad one. Um, and I'm not really sure anybody else wanted it, if I'm being blunt. Um, and I had been chief executive of the Scottish Party before, so I had done a kind of leadership thing. Um, I'd been at Westminster, so I knew them. And that was always a problem before about the divide between MSPs and MPs in the party. Just the same as within the Labour Party, there was a big divide uh, between the two. And I, was, I think I was able to cross that because I'd been in both places. I didn't have that view about one was superior to the other. Um, and um, so that worked um, pretty well. And having worked with ministers directly, you know, Danny Alexander and Michael Moore and so on, and I knew obviously Nick Clegg, so I was part of his campaign team and, 2006, 7, 8, 8. Um, so um, I knew all the players, which helped a bit. So um, it, it just, yeah, it fell to me. I mean, Alison McInnes and I had a good chat. Alison McInnes is a massive loss to the Scottish Parliament, and I still regret the fact that we didn't manage to keep her because um, she was such a, a great individual. Um, but she and I had a chat about, you know, because um, she was particularly keen for... And the new young man who had just joined the group not to assume that he was going to be in charge. And she was absolutely right. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I, um, so it was, it was a natural kind of thing to do. Um, and, um, and I enjoyed it, you know, being able to work on, you know, the coalition was intellectually stimulating, let's say, um, <laughs> if, if not <laughs> a tremendously great experience. Um, but, you know, being able to have a degree of influence over what was happening with the, the UK government on certain things um, was great. I remember meeting Ian Duncan Smith in a hotel in Edinburgh and trying to persuade him to dump the bedroom tax. Um, How did that go? <laughs> he was a strange individual. Um, he was basically saying people would, he said, well, when we changed it in London, he said, you know, when they put that cap on the amount of, so when we changed it there, he said, um, People found a way of paying for it. And then he said, the black market's alive and well. <laughs> and I said, so what you're basically saying, Ian, is that people should break the law in order to pay your taxes. That was basically what he was saying. And it, it was <laughs> astonishing. So um, anyway, thankfully, I'm, I actually managed to negotiate with Danny Alexander to lift the cap on the discretionary housing allowance which effectively led to the abolition of the bedroom tax in Scotland. I never shouted about it, but those are the kind of things that you could do. It's a small thing. It didn't get rid of the bedroom tax altogether, and we're still having to deal with it in England and elsewhere, but it actually, being able to influence at that time was quite an important thing from my point of view. So you get chances to do those kind of things, as well as we used to pick certain issues, so like childcare, um, mental health services, um, you know, issues around about the police, police Scotland. We would pick, we would be the go-to guys, as I would call it, on those certain issues. And we would change, you know, we would change um, government policy. Uh, we managed to get 
two-year-olds the um, 15 hours now, 30 hours of um, childcare, which Alex Salmond was deadly opposed to. Deadly opposed to. He kept going on about family nurse partnerships as being the route to do it. And we won the argument in the end. He gave in. Um, mental health services, we've got massive amounts more money for, for that and has given it the priority it needs just by plugging away on those things. So we had as much influence as the Labour Party or the Tory Party over government policy because we held the balance of power mm. um, in many cases. And we were able to work with the government by just in sheer persistence managed to change their view. So those things will always be important to me that we managed to achieve those things. But yeah, there was difficult times too. Well, that, in talking about difficult times, obviously you come in in 2011, 2014 we have the referendum, and then ever since 2014, well, probably before 2014, the conversation has just been dominated by one issue in Scotland, which is obviously the independence question. How difficult has it been, I guess, for yourself when you were the leader, but also for the party during that period to try and cut through with a message that isn't somehow tied to that or doesn't eventually lead back to that rhetoric? Yeah, I mean, it's It's always a challenge. It's why I did a huge amount. A lot of the party don't think I did an awful lot on federalism, but I did a huge amount on federalism. And we managed to basically bounce the Tories in supporting more powers for the Scottish Parliament when they did not want to do anything. And we managed to get the £2.5 billion uh, welfare budget. We managed to get the, the powers over tax, um, VAT, assignment. It, that was all done because of the work that I did and others in the party did, Robert Brown, Mayne Campbell, other people like that. And we managed to change it. So now the Scottish Parliament raises the majority of the money it spends. And that was an important principle to try and establish. So we had a bit of an edge on more powers and we managed to change, obviously, um, how, the, how the Scottish Parliament works uh, as a result of that. Um, you know, when it's when it's a binary question, though, and the Tories are always going to, you know, if you've got unionists in the name, people think you're maybe a bit more committed to it than they actually are, because they're, they're the ones that are doing the damage to the union more than anybody else, because that's why people vote for, in many cases, the SNP and independence, because they want to get rid of the Tories forever. They think that's the way to do it. It's not, but that's what they think. And the Tories are actually doing more damage to the United Kingdom than they actually think they are. Um, so, um, which is why we rejected Douglas Ross's stupid idea of having this pan-unionist alliance during the election. If you want to, if you want to persuade these people, the anti-Tory, centre centre left, and they're tempted by independence. If you want to persuade them back, you don't do it by joining up with the Tories, the very people that they don't like. It's just completely illogical. I'm appealing to those people. Anis appealed to those people. And we need to do an awful lot to try and attract those people back. If we just consolidate the ever-decreasing amount of votes we're going to get for the United Kingdom, we're on the way out. So let's start addressing the real challenges, the fears that people have got about the future of the United Kingdom, about what kind of country it actually is and should be in the future. You, and almost, you know, I feel quite strongly about these things. No, but you're almost in almost a permanent squeeze position here where you've got such incompetence down in Westminster that you're almost having to fight that battle as well as the battle for principles where, for what you actually stand for. And so you're permanently getting that squeeze on either side of you. And so how then do you break that going forward? Well, you, you, you do it by, I believe in the United Kingdom, full stop. I also believe in reforming the United Kingdom, full stop. That will persuade some people to come back. I actually believe the best way to persuade them to come back is to convince them there is an alternative Scotland in the United Kingdom that there could be. And that is involved in the whole social agenda. It's about equality. It's about investing in the NHS and education, getting the Scottish education system back up to where it should be, to make sure we've got an NHS that can treat people much more quickly than just now. Things that matter in people's daily lives. That's how you persuade those people on that independence curious section of the public to come back and don't support independence because independence will undermine those very things that I've just talked about. So that's what we've got to do. Um, and that's what I've tried to do by focusing on mental health and early education and all those things. That, that's what we need to do. And the Tories are just not helping. The Tories are making it, who would be surprised? The, 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 Tories, the Tories are making it worse. 
Douglas Ross is the worst advert for the United Kingdom. Boris Johnson is just breaking it in the way that he operates. And that's why, you know, but it's not done. There's a massive job. I mean, if the SNP can't get, you know, above 50%, when Boris Johnson's in charge, we've had, we've had this Afghanistan situation, we've had Brexit, um, we've had all these calamities going on. His handling of the pandemic was appalling up until the vaccine. You know, if all those things are happening and you can't get above 50% on independence, what, what are they going to do to get above? So it's not lost by any means, but come on, we need to get that together. It'd be interesting, Willie, just to get some thoughts on, obviously, in the news recently, they've announced that will potentially, obviously still to be formalised, be a, a coalition or something like a coalition between the SNP and the Greens. And obviously, uh, I, I stood against Patrick Harvey in the Scottish Parliament elections. If I'm frank, I really don't know, based off the debates I had, where his policies differ from the SNP. <laughs> it was all the same, and I, I tried to point that out. But what, what do you think that means for Scotland in the next term of the Scottish Parliament? And I guess, you know, how, how dangerous might that be, bringing these people into the fold that are just wanting independence at any cost? Yeah, I kind of get... The, the thing that disturbs me most about the politics of Patrick's Harvey's Greens, because I think a lot of the Greens are not like this, but it's just, it's the tone. It's very aggressive. And they present themselves as curly, but they're far from it. You know, a lot of their language is, I think, very divisive. Um, and I think Nicola will find that hard. I think she'll find that hard to handle. On a, I won't go into the issues, but on a whole range of issues. Um, I think the failure to understand about what a just transition actually is, um, that, you know, you can do tokenistic changes on things um, that look good, but actually don't deal with the climate emergency one little bit. You've actually got to deal with the demand in Scotland on transport and housing. That's the big opportunity. So I'm not sure that... Um, you know, Patrick and his team have got really got the answers, but he's also the tone of it is, I think, very divisive. It's, you know, the way he speaks. I mean, I don't like the Conservatives, but the way he speaks about the Conservatives, it's like they're aliens. Um, and I just, I think we've just got to be a bit more respect in, in politics for the way that we treat each other. And I just don't think that helps. And um, so I think, though, I think Nicola will find it hard. And he's obviously trying to, be on the inside, but not be on the inside. Um, but it's a shared agenda, it says it. So if things go wrong, he's responsible. Uh, responsible as anybody else in the government. So um, if he tries to have slopey shoulders and get out of this, then I think the voters will view it differently. You've got to face up. And even if he's got areas where we agree to disagree, um, as it's as it's uh, in, the, in the programme, um, the fact that you're allowing the SNP to do what they want on the areas that you disagree is not agreeing to disagree. It's not like putting it to one side and doing nothing about it. The SNP are able to move ahead with their agenda on all these things, and the Greens can do nothing about it. They've abdicated the responsibility to try and influence them. So I think there's a there's a lot of fundamental flaws in the way they've set it up, which I think will come back to bite them. But you know we've got to allow them to have a have a go at it. I mean they've they won the election. Between them, they've they've got the mandate um, in terms of delivering their agenda. I don't think they've got a clear mandate on independence because Nicola softened it in the weeks before the, the election because she knew it was a loser. Um, but I think they will try and push it forward on independence. I think it's a really tricky one because I can't see Boris agreeing to a referendum and I don't know what she does if he says no. Mm. It, it does. I mean, I, the, the thing that I find ridiculous about the whole setup is, as you rightly said, this sort of, we're in, but we're not in, and we're holding people to account, but we're also part of it. And, you know, I likened it to, if you've ever seen the Woody Allen film Bananas, where he cross-examines himself in court, and he runs between the box and being the <laughs> lawyer. And I said, that's, that's kind of what we're seeing Probably here, right. where Patrick Harvey's part of it, but he's also cross-examining himself. So I don't really see how it all works. But, but getting back to, you know, reflecting on your 10 years as leader, um, I think most people probably know, and actually maybe a lot of uh, our, our viewers and listeners down south might not know this, but you were actually voted one of the most recognisable leaders that people knew of in Scotland, um, obviously known for a lot of your big stunts that you did uh, that got a lot of coverage in the press. Um, 
And if we could just touch on kind of reflecting on your 10 years as leader, what, what are the things you're most proud of? And also what really kind of, I guess, started off the whole craze of Willie Rennie stunts? Um, so the things I'm most proud of is mental health uh, and early education. Those are two things. We changed that. Um, I think the third thing is we've managed to keep the Liberal Democrats alive. Um, we've managed to keep it as a, a credible political force in Scotland, which was not always certain. Um, we've got you know, four, I think, excellent members of parliament. Um, you know, Wendy in particular in my own constituency, I'm particularly delighted about because she is, she's a class act. Um, you know, but Jamie and Christine and Alistair are also great advocates for the party. So we've managed to get a team of people, gender balanced team of people. That was that's another area that I'm, I worked on a lot. Um, so that's those are thing of things I'm particularly pleased with. Um, and you know, a good team in the Scottish Parliament with open big majorities. I mean, I try not to say it too often, but Alex Cole Hamilton is the most popular MSP there has ever been in the Scottish Parliament, which is not a good thing for him. Um, but he's, but you know, we, you don't get that kind of vote unless you're doing something right. We just need to spread that a bit more across the country. Um, so in terms of the photo ops, it was all completely cynical. Um, it was all um, partly, because I like having a bit of fun with things, uh, an election should be fun, but it was to cut through. You know, and if any, you know, if just one person comes up to me in the street and asks me about a photo opportunity, something that I've done that particular week, and I'm able to engage with them when I might not otherwise be able to do so, then that's a win. And there was lots of people come up to me all the time and talk about these things. Um, it was always a delicate balance act about how far you go with things. You've got to maintain your credibility. Um, sometimes I don't think I did. Um, but it's it's a that delicate balance act. But you know the coverage we got as a result and the exposure for the party meant it was well worth it. And you know in politics you've got to get attention so that people talk about the things that you care about. And I think that was the part the reason why we were reasonably successful over the last ten years about keeping the liberal flame alive in, in Scotland. And some Lib Dems can be quite po-faced about it. I mean, we saw it after the Cheshire and Amersham with the blue wall being hit by Ed with that little mallet. And then some people going, oh, are we really that party? But it was everywhere. It was on the front cover of every yeah. newspaper, on yeah. chat shows. So you think we don't get an awful lot of press at the best of times. Yeah. So that It's a way of getting through. Oh, no, it is. I mean, I don't know really what the deck chair um, on South Queen's Ferry was all about, but... And it was on the front pages of all the papers. And it spoke to a moment, I think, when people were coming out of the lockdown and here's me relaxed on this massive big yellow deck chair. It just summed up what perhaps people were wanting. It was a bit more of a relaxed life where you were outdoors doing things. Um, and that was everywhere. Um, Ed's photo-op was great. I loved it. Um, you know, I just think he was on the wrong side. I thought he was going to chop somebody's knees off by hammering back me, <laughs> but but it was great. And just do this. I don't care about what they. I mean, actually, you know, people would ask me, "What's the message that you're trying to send out of this photo opportunity?" I said, "Well, I don't know." <laughs> people have to be a message. But you just, whenever I was on the TV, I would always talk about the things I really care about. I never joked and laughed on the TV when I when I was speaking. It was always the soundbite I wanted to deliver. It was always the things I really cared about. So serious about the politics, but have a bit of fun in order to get the attention was the, was the tactic. Well, just a, one thing. I was, people kept asking me um, why the party was determined to make you look as small as possible because you were always on a big deck chair <laughs> or you were, you were playing chess with giant chess figures and people were like, is Willie a very small person or are these very big? It was, it was really simple. There was a... There's a wedding company had these that we could hire things from, just happened to have really big things. It was like, <laughs> so it was just really what was easy. So with a giant chess set, the deck chair, um, there was someone else we had. Anyway, there was there was lots of um, big things. Um, but we, we can't you know, talk had... about stunts without perhaps maybe the biggest stunt you were involved in, which was uh, 
the pigs having quite a fun time when you were on national television. And for anybody who doesn't know, you were obviously on national TV, on the news, talking, and two pigs in the background were, were having a bit of love, shall we say. So was that, did you know that was happening or did they just? No, I got a phone call. They said, after we'd left, they said, Willie, the something's gone wrong. Uh, they said, uh, Phil Sim from the BBC, BBC says he's broken the internet. Because um, he had he had only discovered it when he got back to the studio and looked through the tape, um, and then put it up, and the whole thing just went wild. And we did think for a while, oh God, it's going to cause us problems. Is the kind of symbolism of this is that maybe we're anyway, I won't use the word, um, <laughs> you know, maybe we're in trouble. But actually, everybody laughed. So it's how you handle these things is partly. And, but that was the only the only stunt that wasn't intended. All the others were. It went the way they were intended to. So was, and you've been you've been immortalized as well in comic form. People always talk about the the, the yeah, have you got it there? The, the Willie Rennie post. <laughs> <laughs> so that this is um, Neil Slorens, who's a, a really good friend. He's an artist. He write he actually does cartoons for the national newspaper. So he's not a natural political ally, but he and I um have this kind of um relationship where I think he, uh, you know, anyway, he's, he's a really good guy. He actually got, I had that picture, I think it was, I don't know if it's the one in the office. Anyway, I had I took a picture of me with that and sent it to him. Um, and it was his cartoon framed, but he's now framed that picture and put it on his wall. So it's really nice. <laughs> so Neil Florence is a good guy. Yeah. So just... um. Obviously, you know, we'll finish up, but really, you've obviously now stepped down as party leader in Scotland, but, you you know, you're still an active MSP and, uh, you know, obviously the work that you do in North East Fife continues to be fantastic, but kind of what, where do you, and you touched a little bit on this, but where do you think the party goes now in Scotland? Obviously, as you mentioned, 2021 was a slightly disappointing result and obviously that we lost the seat um, and we've got, still quite a lot of work to do over the next, you know, five, six, however many years it may be before we have the next election. And um, kind of what's the route forward? And I guess um, you obviously have worked with Alex a lot uh, in the past, um, and he's obviously going to do some great work as a leader going forward. Um, but is there specific things you would like to maybe see your legacy continue as, as well going forward? I mean, I think the most important thing is, is to win the battle for relevance. Um, that's what it's all about. People might like everything that you say and do and all your policies and every single bit of the manifesto, but if they don't think you're going to win, they're not going to vote for you. So it's all about the battle for relevance. How do you get relevance? And I think this is where it's the interests of our, our interests and those in part of the Labour Party, but also um, of Scotland, align, which is we need to get the progressive pro-UK forces to be much bigger and stronger and therefore relevant. And if we can get those to be stronger and relevant, people will vote for it. Um, we won't do that by ourselves. We're not strong enough in certain parts of the country, but neither the Labour Party strong enough in certain parts of the country. So there is um, a, a, a common interest in making sure that people believe that Scotland and the United Kingdom can be a progressive, fair, generous, outward-looking country. Um, so we've got a common interest in doing that. Of course, we have different ways of making that happen from the Labour Party. We're different parties. We've got different priorities. But the most important thing we can do is both of us recognise that that alternative needs to be bigger and stronger so that people move away from the two nationalisms. Because the two extremes are tearing the country apart. And it's our job. It's in our own interest to make our party stronger. But it's also in Scotland's interest and therefore the United Kingdom's to win that argument. And that's why it's really important. Now, people think, oh, you're throwing your lot in the Labour Party. I am not doing that. What I'm proposing here is to make sure people realise that that alternative, that progressive alternative, is big enough and strong enough to vote for, wherever they are in the country. And you take your pick which one you want. But, and you might have different balances of opinion, but you should never be forced into voting for the SNP or the Conservatives for fear of the other, when actually you believe in something else. And that something else is us. Um, those people up in, the, the, the lady in Aberdeenshire who wrote to me during the election said, all my friends are Liberal Democrats, she says, all of them. 
but half of them are voting Tory and half of them are voting SNP for fear of the other. I want them to vote Liberal Democrat and I'm trying to the blue in the face to get them to vote Liberal Democrat. What can we do? And that's what's important. We owe it to those people to create a stronger alternative. And I know Alex can do this. He's got the character and the energy to do it. He is, he's a really great leader. He's a great individual. He's passionate, really cares, very emotional about what he believes in. And I think it's important for all of us to get right behind them to make that a success. I think he can, but that's the strategic goal. Of course, you know, individual policies are important. Federalism is important. You know, national care service, all that kind of stuff is important. But what is more important is convincing people that that progressive alternative is credible and relevant and can win. That's what I really feel strongly about. And that's why we need to you know, talk to the Labour Party about how they can you know, play their part alongside us playing our part. It's not giving in at all. It's not saying we're just the Labour Party adjunct. That's not the case. We are as strong, if not stronger, in many parts of the country than they are. We've got a big role to play in this. So let's recognise what the strategic goal is, uh, because that's the best way to advance the Lib Dems, advance Scotland and the UK. Thank you so much, Willie. And, and I think for a final word, just to say as a, as a personal thanks as well, obviously for your 10 years of, of leadership and dedication, but also just from an encouragement perspective from myself when I ran in the Scottish Parliament. And I, I really do appreciate all the kind words that you said and encouragement. And um, so thanks for joining us and thanks for reflecting a bit on your time as leader. But obviously you're not going anywhere. So I'm sure we might have you on at some point in the future again as a uh, as uh, M MSP for North East Fife. Um, but I think the only final thing to say is in, uh, in sort of a uh, testament to Neil Lawrence is just to say, Willie Rennie. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you to everyone. What, I mean, anyone who's been watching and listening to this, obviously, what have you made of what Willie said? Comment below. Make sure you like and subscribe uh, to the podcast as well. You can catch Willie on uh, social media on Twitter at Willie underscore Rennie. You can catch David at David X McKenzie. You can catch myself at John Potter LD. Do follow everything to do with the podcast. Do subscribe, and we'll be back with another episode very soon. <laughs>